see a show of hands of people who it was difficult to sing that song because things may not be well for you right now? Can I see a show of hands for people who would describe their life as restless where you are right now? And can we close our eyes, bow our heads, and especially for those who raised your hand, do you mind, or if it's comfortable for you, will you just open your hands where you are? If you were close to those who you saw raise a hand, now is the time to lay them before God. Speak their name. If you don't know their name, God does. Uh, God, as we were led in communion this morning by Jeremy and Sarah, reminding us how to speak thankfulness and to be grateful in this moment, I'm grateful to be a part of a church that's not afraid to talk about how we're broken, but how what we want to do is help point one another to the one who can make us whole. Sin has disrupted everything. Yet I pray, especially for those in this room who raised their hands and for those who may were, maybe they were too weak or too embarrassed to not raise a hand, remind them today that you're the God who does not abandon us no matter what, that you were with us. God, as I came into this room early this morning and I walked up and down these uh, rows and touched pews, I am reminded as I prayed a blessing and an anointing on each one. It's not this room that is so special, but every person who is in a pew has a story in their life that is it reminds them how valuable they are to you, how precious they are to you. It's a story you care about, a person you care about. And today, will you unleash the power and presence of your Holy Spirit? Uh, God, will you pour forth your Spirit from my words, that if I speak what is true, that it will establish roots and will set deep into hearts. And if I speak any word that doesn't honor you, that it will fall to the ground and will bear no fruit at all, and that it will not be remembered. But today as a church, we want to declare that Jesus he wins. He defeats everything Satan has thrown at us, and we want to live from this place victorious. Through Christ we pray, the church said. Amen. Now, please be seated. Man, I got a lot to, uh, to dive into today. I've been so excited to preach this sermon. Before we get there, how many of you helped out with a clothing sale this past weekend? If you're not too weak to raise a hand, let me see a show of hands. Can we thank God for what he did? through all of you. So amazing. And thank you. Jump on our Facebook page. You'll see pictures and you'll hear stories for the husbands and kids who went without their mama and wife for a while this week. Uh, man, God bless you. Um, you're back together. Get some rest. Uh, how many of you were at Winterfest last weekend? Can I see a show of hands? There are about 120 to 130 uh, teens and um, volunteers who went. We missed you. We prayed for you. I know as a preacher, I'm not supposed to play favorites, but for those of you who brought beef jerky from the beef jerky outlet back to me, I just want to say, I lift your name up before the Lord before all else, all right? <laughs> back as a kid, all of us probably as kids, we remember the rhyme, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men, what? Couldn't put the dude back together again, right? And now this is a part of we are love for Humpty Dumpty to like cry out to Jesus to fix him, right? But the rhyme as we know it ends with this guy who is broken. And for many of you, the life as you know it right now feels a lot like that. Now the name Humpty Dumpty doesn't show up in scripture. You don't, the story's not told, but a life that is in shambles, a life that has been broken is a life that sometimes seems too familiar, 
this life that just falls apart. And, and I'm in this series right now. It's the third week that we're talking about sin. You can even see up on the screen the image Justin created is of this, uh, it's, uh, this snare. It's like this shackle. Because when we think about sin and how Scripture talks about sin, this isn't a word we can ignore. It's not a word that we can replace with something else. We need to be able to talk about sin. Now, in this series, what I want to do is not talk about a sin in a way where it makes you feel so bad about who you are in your sin. What I want to talk about is the good news of what Jesus has come to do because of our sin. How Jesus has responded to the sin of the world. Because any sin that comes to destroy is sin that Jesus wants to reverse. That Jesus wants to, to silence in every way. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, what it says is we all fall short of the glory of God. All people fall short of the glory of God. We have all sinned and we fall short. It doesn't say some have sinned and fall short, or most have sinned, or many. All of us have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. Uh, <clears throat> there's a story of a woman who was addicting to sh- addicted to shopping. She couldn't stop. And no, this is not a story about any of you in this room, all right? It was a woman who couldn't stop shopping. She would come home and she would have another bag. And the husband would say, baby, we've talked about this. Don't do it again. And she, just, she would find herself coming home from work and stopping at the mall or stopping at a store. There would be something in a window. And she just had to go buy it. She loved shoes. She loved blouses, shirts. Uh, she just loved shopping. And finally, they talked about it. They prayed about it for a while because it was messing up their budget. They prayed about it. And then the man said, okay, here's, these, here's the plan this week. Anytime you feel tempted to shop and buy things. I want you just to point your finger at whatever it is and say, get behind me, Satan. All right, so they practice, and this is what she was supposed to do. Well, then uh, she ends up coming home a few days later, and she has a bag of clothes. And they sit down, and her husband's like, we talked about this. You're supposed to say, get behind me, Satan. And she said, I tried that. I tried on a dress. I looked in the mirror. I wasn't going to buy it. I said, get behind me, Satan. And all I heard from Satan was, okay, but you look really good from back here, too. So I just had to buy it. All right. And don't you wish that when it came to the sin in our lives that it was as easy as saying, get behind me, Satan. And sometimes we do that, and I bet you've prayed that. You you still find sinning as something that at times in our lives comes as easy as breathing. It seems to be just a natural part of who we are. What I've said all three weeks, and you'll hear me say this more, is that sin is more than just a violation of rules. Sin is a violation of relationship. And this is why everyone in this room, especially the man you're looking at up on this stage, is in desperate need of Jesus. Not just because of what Jesus saves us from, but because of what Jesus saves us for. What Jesus saves us towards, this new life. Because when you read about the early church and these early Christians in the book of Acts, when you read about these people, what you see is that they had this this passion for evangelism, this passion for people to know about Jesus, and it wasn't just so people didn't go to hell. It's because they wanted people thriving in this relationship with Jesus. It's what Jesus had to give them, what Jesus had to bring. It was a passion for new life because they realized what we need to realize too is that sin came to ruin everything. And it was true in the beginning and it's true now. Sin came to ruin everything. So open your Bibles to the very beginning. All right, we're in the third week of this series and I haven't even gone to Genesis 3 and 4 yet. And that was intentional because I didn't want to begin In Genesis 3 and 4, I wanted to begin the first couple of weeks with the good news of Jesus and how he has responded to sin. And that the first mention of sin in the New Testament isn't about how sin came to ruin us. It's about how Jesus came to ruin sin. 
But it's time for us to go back to the very beginning. Look in your Bibles in Genesis chapter 2, the very end of chapter 2. Here's how the creation story ends. This beautiful story of God creating things and setting it in motion and saying how good it was. In verse 24, it says, Therefore a man leaves his father and mother, clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. And if you underline in your Bibles, you make notes. If you have a phone and you highlight things on your phone, that last phrase says this, And they were not ashamed. Because God created the world in a way and he set things in motion that there was nothing to be ashamed of. There wasn't isolation. There wasn't shame. There wasn't guilt or resentment. All things were good. There was no shame. Nothing to be ashamed of. Which is almost foreshadowing, right? Because you know how the story goes. You know that as we turn the page, something's about to change. And in chapter 3, verse 1, here's what you have. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God made. That's interesting, right? And he said to the woman, did God say? So if you underline in your Bibles or make notes, notice, did God say? Now, one thing I want you to understand is when you read Genesis 1 through 4, it's not just about something that happened. It's about something that continues to happen. What the serpent does in Genesis 3 verse 1 is he he doesn't come and try to convince Adam and Eve that God is false or that God is some myth or that God isn't real. Because what Satan did then is what sin wants to do for you now. It is not just the denial of who God is. It is a twisting of who God is and what God does and what God allows and what God forbids. The first action of the serpent in Scripture is not trying to convince people that God isn't real. The first action of the serpent is, can we just twist what God said a little bit? And he's able to do it in a way where he convinces Adam and Eve that God is holding something back from you. Is this not at the heart of almost every sin we commit in our lives? That God's holding something back. It really can't be that bad. I mean, it looks pleasurable to the eye. It looks good. It it tastes good. It looks fine. Why would God withhold this? Why, what is God holding back? So the serpent twists the word of God and then convinces them that God's holding something back. And I think you know how the story goes. They end up taking the fruit. And I want you to look in verse 7. Skip to verse 7 because here's what it says. Then the eyes of both of them were open. If you underline in your Bibles, I want you to mark that. Make a note. The eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made loincloths for themselves. So now what God did in Genesis 2, verse 23 and 24, where there is no shame, now in chapter 3, verse 7, their eyes are open because of the sin in their life, and now they see there is shame. And from this moment, shame enters into the world. Isolation enters into the world. And everything God created that was good has now been broken. Everything you can imagine that sin, how it wrecks havoc on this world, how it destroys every relationship dysfunction, every form of cancer. I think from this moment on is when natural disasters, all creation went berserk. Sin entered into the world and they, there's isolation, there's shame. They, 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 they know that something went wrong. Do you remember when you lost your innocence? Can you remember a time in your life where you're like, man, that was a moment where I think I lost my innocence. Maybe for you, you go back to a time when you were four or five years old and your mom and your dad ask if you brushed your teeth and you said yes, but you really didn't. And they go and they they check the toothbrush to see if it's wet, right? 
Or maybe for you, it wasn't just a loss of innocence because sin you committed in your life. Maybe it was a sin someone else committed against you because that's how sin works sometimes. In this moment, they lose their innocence. And Satan told them, hey, if you eat the fruit, you're you're really not going to die. And in a way, Satan was true. What he said was true. They didn't die. They didn't lose their life, but the life they knew up to that moment would never be the same. So you flip over to chapter 4, because chapter 3 is not the only chapter you need to read about sin entering into the world. You need to read chapter 4 with chapter 3. Did you know the first time the word sin is mentioned in Scripture isn't in chapter 3? It's in chapter 4. And I'm not suggesting sin doesn't happen in chapter 3. It does. There's rebellion. They step across lines God set up to protect life. But in chapter 4 is where sin shows up for the first time. In chapter 4, verse 1, it goes like this. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and she bore Cain saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. I don't think you can skip over the beauty and power of that, the grace that is in that, that even though this woman was supposed to die, God spared their life, and now what she acknowledges in the presence of whoever it is out there is, with the help of God who hasn't abandoned us, with the help of Him, creation continues to move on in the world. But then she gives birth to Cain and Abel, who don't like each other. And it's almost, again, this foreshadowing. It's a true story, but it's it's foreshadowing of throughout the rest of Scripture, what's going to happen is you have, throughout the rest of Genesis, brothers don't get along very well. And Cain and Abel, they offer this sacrifice before the Lord, but they offer different sacrifices. One brings a sacrifice of livestock and animals. One brings a a sacrifice of of wheat. And we, we aren't told some of the details, but God favors one sacrifice over the other, and Ab- or Cain is so mad. He's angry. And what God tells him at the end of verse 6 and end of verse 7, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, and this is the first mention of sin in your Bible, sin is lurking at the door and it's desirous for you. But you can master it. So God warns him. God gives him a way out. God lets him know there is the strength I've placed within you to say no and to deny. But if you've read the story before, Cain ends up going and he murders his brother. Sin is lurking. If you make a note in your Bible, underline that because that's what sin does. It's trying to creep in, and a lot of times sin doesn't come through the front door. It's wanting to come through the window of your heart, the back door of your heart, to start something small that will grow into something big. William Willimon says this. He says, Our situation is that we view our lives through a set of lies about ourselves, false stories of who we are and who we are meant to be, never getting an accurate picture of ourselves. That ever been true in your life? And what he, he also says up on the screen, Our mortality is not only in that we will die, but that we live our lives in that creaturely insecurity whereby we attempt to secure our lives through the wrong means. We seek security through things that really don't secure us. And what happened to Cain is the same thing that happens to us. When we take life into our own hands, we can make a mess out of the life that God created. So it's a story of sin, and it's a story of salvation, where the first couple sinned. And then we continue this rebellion. And then what God did throughout Scripture is God sent prophets and God gave commands and God gave laws. And then God sent His own Son, Jesus, to deal with sin. It's this plan of salvation that was unfolding. But before we get to the good news of Jesus, what I want you to see is there's good news even back in Genesis 3 and 4 of how God responded to sin. God didn't wait until Jesus 
to be a dispenser of grace. Some people were taught that grace doesn't show up in the Old Testament, but you need to go and read the Old Testament again. There are times where God is quick to become angry, but most of the time God is slow to become angry. And I want you to see what happens even back in chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Here's what God does. Because if you're reading Genesis for the first time, (laughs) after Adam and Eve sinned, you have to be asking the question, what's God going to do? Because God said they're going to die. But what's he going to do? And in verse 20, here's here's what happens. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for the man and for his wife, and he clothed them. So the life that they knew to that moment would never be the same, but they, God punished them. They were removed from the garden, but God did not abandon them. He clothed them. He protected them. Something had to die so that he could provide something to clothe them with. God provided for him. In chapter 4, here's Cain who's crying out to God saying, you're sending me out, but I'm going to die. And what God does in verse 15 is God mark, puts a mark on Cain. God became, if you, can, if you can grasp this, God became the first tattoo artist in the history of the world. He puts some kind of mark on him so that people know, hey, this dude's untouchable. And if you keep reading chapter 4, it is through Cain that people came into the world who could build cities and build stuff and build instruments so they could worship God then. So through Cain came these gifts that blessed the world because God was a dispenser of grace then, and he's a dispenser of grace now. So here's a phrase I want you to write down. Punished, but not abandoned. Or disciplined, but not abandoned. Because I think some of you struggle with this. Because what God wants to move us from is this idea that we are punished and abandoned. And he wants to move us towards this belief that what God does in Scripture is, yes, he punishes and he disciplines people because of their sin, because God wants them living in righteousness. But it's not that you are punished and disciplined and abandoned. It's you're punished and disciplined, but you're not abandoned by God. And I think some of you may struggle with this more than you realize. I don't know how many times I'm with people from all ages who confess to sin in their life that has permanently seemed to identify them. It may be sexual sin. It may be emotions that have gone on too long and it's become a big part of who they are. And what Satan wants us to believe is that whatever sin it was that you committed, it has now become who you are, so you might as well live into your reputation. Have you ever been there? And what God wants to remind you is the way he works throughout Scripture is that you're not punished and abandoned by God. It's that God punishes and disciplines because he desires righteousness for us, but you're not abandoned. We cannot ignore sin in our lives. But above all that, above the importance of not ignoring sin is we cannot ignore the work of God over our sin in our lives. That what God has done to sin is life-changing, and all you have to do is trust in what Jesus has already accomplished. We sang a song a minute ago um, that my sin of the bliss of this wondrous thought, uh, my sin, not in part, but the whole. Not just little pieces of your sin or half of your sin, all of your sin. As I was praying this morning, walking in and out of the rows, just whoever was going to be here, praying over your life and your story, what kept coming to me is all of our stories come together with the cross. These crosses have been up here almost eight years that these frames which hold the stories of our lives, all of our stories come together at the cross where Jesus dealt with all of our sin. 
And what we do is we trust in what Jesus has accomplished. And come to a point in our lives where we say, Jesus, I want to follow you, not my own way or not the way of anyone else. And we, we, oh, we're obedient to, to baptism to lay ourselves down so we can be raised up as new people and enter into this path of new life. And the blessings that flow through this covenant with Jesus opens us up to incredible possibilities. All right, so I want you to see, uh, because of what Jesus has accomplished and how Jesus wants to help us mature, let me throw out a little image, a little illustration for you. And let me begin with this. Every image, metaphor, and illustration breaks down at some point, right? So it's going to take a little bit of imagination on your part for this to work. Now, my buddy uh, David Skidmore, uh, he and I were speaking at an event uh, probably a year and a half ago, and I saw him do something like this. So I called him up. He said it wasn't his idea. So Skidmore is going to watch this. He wanted to watch this sermon, and I'm going to give him credit today, and maybe the next time I do this, all right, but then after that, it's going to be my idea, okay? That's how it works. Now, for the men's class, I remember we did this about a year and a half ago. Each one of these glasses stands for your heart, your soul, who you are, okay? And this milk is going to represent Jesus, who desires to fill our heart with himself. I got 2% milk. How many of you drink 2% milk here? Uh, How many whole milk people do we have? Oh my goodness, it tastes... How many slim milk? Do we have any slim milk? I judge people who drink slim milk, all right? But it's okay. It's all right. I I hear it's good for you, okay? So, Jesus comes to fill us with himself. So we got three glasses. Boom. Now, here's what's cool. Hershey syrup is going to play the role of the Holy Spirit today. (laughs) And some of you are thinking, if the Holy Spirit is like Hershey syrup, I am going to become more charismatic in my life, right? So as Jesus desires to become more of who we are, the Holy Spirit desires to come and to fill fill us with the Spirit of God. Now, my, my youngest son, Noah, loves chocolate milk, drinks it all day. We'll drink it all day if we allow him to. I was pouring chocolate milk for him, making chocolate milk for him not too long ago. And he said, dad, mom's my favorite. And I was like, why would you say that, man? Do you know what I do to you, for you? And he said, uh, he said, well, when it comes to chocolate milk, mom puts more Hershey syrup in there than you do. So I was like, well, we can change that from now on. All right. <clears throat> Imagine the Holy Spirit, okay? who desires to fill us with himself. Did you see how much I just put in there? Can you see it down in there? And then the spoon represents those things in our lives, the atmosphere, the environments we place ourselves in that stirs our heart and our affections and our emotions for God. And it's so important that we have those environments and those disciplines in our lives that are connecting us to the heart of God and to the mission of God, of what God is what, what he's interested in in the world of the lost being found, of the poor being taken care of, of, of all people coming to know who Jesus is. And there's this stirring in our life that stirs the Spirit of God and stirs our heart and leads us to maturity. Now, for those of you who like chocolate milk, does that not look good? It has been stirred right. Uh, I have not touched it, so you can come up here later if you're the first one, and you can partake after this sermon, all right? But sometimes we've been in a place in our lives where Jesus has filled us. We've connected with Jesus and the Spirit of God has come and the Spirit of God desires to become all we are and to stir our hearts. And we kind of put ourselves in the environment, but there's no stirring. 
What happens when there's no stirring in our life? Do you see how it is settled at the bottom? And if you tasted this right now, it probably wouldn't taste like this one, would it? It would taste like 2% milk. It wouldn't taste like chocolate milk. And then what also happens in our life is Jesus desires to become everything we are, yet sin desires to coat our heart, to, to, to form this barrier around who we are. And the Spirit of God is so eager to fill us with the Spirit. And that's the same amount of chocolate that I put in this one and then I put in this one. And as you look at this one here, something's a little different, right? What sin has desired to do to you and to me and to the world since the very beginning is to twist the word of God and what God allows and what God doesn't allow and what God says and what God doesn't say. Sin has desired to form this barricade around our hearts that hinders the work of the Spirit of God inside of us. Uh, Now, I could be wrong and I could change my mind about this tomorrow, But I think what Satan wants is something like this right here. That Satan's activity in your life is not just to keep you from denying Christ, but I think this right here can become one of the most dangerous methods that keeps the gospel from going throughout the world because we've claimed to know Jesus. The activity of the Spirit of God has been alive in us somehow, but there's no stirring, which means there's not a, a desire in our life when we're in this stage to be light or to be salt, and we're, we're just stagnant. There's no stirring. Yet even when it comes to this right here, if you were close enough, can you see how it starts to settle again around the side and around the bottom? I mean, I've just been talking about this for like two minutes, and that's happened. This, this has happened in my own life numerous times. Uh, when early on in high school, uh, this is how I would go about my year. I would go to Soul Link or these youth rallies or a retreat or church camp outside of San Antonio, and there would be this stirring of the Spirit of God in my life, and I would be so excited about who God is, but you know, four weeks later, I wasn't as interested in putting myself in a place where I was being stirred, and my affections for Jesus were growing, and I could feel my spiritual life begin to settle. Yet God comes to keep stirring. The resurrection of Jesus keeps stirring. Let me show you how this happens. Open your Bibles to John chapter 20. Because I want you to see how John and Luke in their gospel, because when the power of the resurrection came upon the world and Jesus rose from the dead, conquering the grave once and for all, dealing sin, a catastrophic blow. When Jesus rose from the dead in John chapter 20 and verse 15, the first people who saw him were some women. And here's what it says. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? And notice this this next sentence. Supposing him to be a gardener. What in the world was it about Jesus that made her think Jesus was a gardener? Did he have a bag of fertilizer over his shoulder? You know, like, did he have gloves on? Was he carrying shovels? Did he have tulips he was about to plant? Like, what was it that made her think he was a gardener? Here is Jesus, who this woman knew. She knew his voice, right? She had seen him, and now she thinks he's a gardener. And I think that story happened, but I think John tells the story for a much bigger reason. It's because John is fully aware that in the very beginning, in the garden, is where things went crazy. 
And what he wants all believers to know is that Jesus becomes that gardener who reverses the curse from Genesis 3 and 4. He becomes that gardener who tends to the heart. And if you are a gardener or you've ever known one, you know that gardening can be difficult work. It takes pruning. It takes pulling out weeds. It takes getting on your hands and knees. And for us to be gardened, for us to be pruned the way God wants to, new life can sometimes be a difficult task. But John wants you to know Jesus rose from the dead, and here's what he did for sin. He becomes this gardener who is reversing, who is undoing what Satan did at the very beginning. Is that good news? Does that make sense to you? Yes or no? Okay, because I can keep going if you need me to, all right? Flip back, go to Luke chapter 24. Because in Luke 24, Jesus rose from the dead. He walks on the road uh, of um, the Emmaus Road, and he's walking with disciples, yet they don't know it's him yet. They're having this conversation about it, the function of Scripture. He's teaching them about the prophets, yet they don't even know it's Jesus. And then when he's at the table, what you read in Luke 24, verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he blessed and he broke it, he gave it to them, and then their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight, and they said to each other, were not our hearts burning? Were not our hearts stirring within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the Scriptures to us? In the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and then they translated it into Greek. In the Septuagint, in Luke chapter 24, verse 31, when it says their eyes were open, it's the exact same phrase that was used in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Then when Adam and Eve sinned and their eyes were open to see that now they are separated from God, what Jesus does is now he opens eyes to see how Jesus came to make all things right. Jesus came to right wrongs. And when they recognize Jesus for who he is, there is this burning, this stirring in their hearts for him. Um, So I'm glad Humpty Dumpty is not how our story ends. And you may be thinking today that you are so broken, either in your sin or because of sin of other people that has therefore left you broken. And you may be sitting here wondering, what is the good news for me? How do I take hold of this good news and live into this good news? Um, Casey and I have some china that was given to us on our wedding day almost 14 years ago, and I can count on one hand how many times we've used it. And for many people, china can be priceless. In Japanese, in Japan, the Japanese have a form of art that is priceless. And it's not things that look like they've never been touched or scratched. It's actually pieces of broken pottery. And you can see some images on the screen, and what they do, and this is considered to be some of the finest art in Japan, is they take things that have been broken and they put them back together. And here's this phrase, if you'll go to that last one. Here's what one person says about it. That when the Japanese men broke an object, they aggrandized the damage by filling the cracks with gold. And listen to this, because they believe that when something suffered damage and has a history, it becomes more beautiful. It's a broken beautiful. For those praying this morning, will you go ahead and get in your places? We'll have shepherds up front. If there's something you want to bring before this church, we invite you to come to the front.
We have shepherds in the back. We'll have a few women around. I need you to understand the environment we create in this service now because we aren't really sure what's going to happen in a moment like this, and it's, it's totally up to God. We just want to give Him space to move in hearts. We've set up a couple of tables. There are pens. There are pencils because there may be a form of brokenness in your life or in the life of someone you know that you want the church to be praying for. The staff, we take those cards. We pray over them in our meetings uh, tomorrow morning. The shepherds pray over these cards. And we don't want to go throughout the rest of our week without giving a moment for us to either confess or share or receive a blessing from the Lord. So that's why we create some space like this. If there's something you want to bring before the church, we have Randy up here to my right. If, If there's someone here who you may be thinking, I'm so broken in my sin, I need to trust Jesus. I've yet to trust in what Jesus has accomplished. I've yet to be baptized into Christ. We would love for this to be a day that we get to celebrate with you. Let's stand together. Let's declare the wonders of God in our life and in this world. Let's sing.